If you ask Gail Ann Dorsey what her biggest influences are, she might say Black Iraq. She listened to everything from Jimi Hendrix to Barbara Streisand, from The Carpenters to Heart. She left Philadelphia to go to New York, where it just wasn't happening for the music she wanted to make, and she found herself in London, got a record deal, and made a solo record called The Corporate World. Gail and I have known each other a long time. When I was living in London, I reached out to Gail, did some writing. We both sung together on a Gang of Four record called Mall. And next thing I knew, she recommended me to go on tour with her with Brian Ferry for TV. Gail's gone on to work with Tears for Fears, Jane Sibbery, Lenny Kravitz, the Indigo Girls, Gwen Stefani, the National, the, the and David Bowie from 1995 until his death in 2016. I'm so proud and happy to present to you Gail and Dorsey. Go home studio with all my heroes behind me on the wall. That's awesome. I've seen <laughs> Joni Mitchell and- There's Whitney Houston, there's Neil Young. Your mom's hey. over there somewhere. What's wow, up? what a very young Whitney Houston too. Yeah, I like that picture. I like the picture of her as a kid and then a little more grown. This is so great. I actually found this picture in my London flat. My hair short years. Oh my goodness. It's like some crazy weird yeah. work. Accidental double exposure. You're like holding a pen or a wand behind me. Like it's crazy. That's a cool picture. South of Venus t-shirts. I know. I'm I don't sure know. I still have one somewhere. I'm, I'm sure. The timing of everything. I was remembering that we got together to do that and then Shortly after, Andy Gill asked us to sing on that record. Yeah, on Mall. And then uh, we were going to do some work together. I guess we did demos together. And then um, mm -hmm. then you got the gig with Brian Ferry to do some. That's right. TV, That's right. You recommended me for it. And then I went on that with you. Yeah. And I have this great memory. I don't know where we were. Maybe it was Madrid. We went out to get coffee somewhere. We were sitting outdoors. It was very European. You were telling me, you know what? I, I want to play with David Bowie. I'm going to play with David Bowie. <laughs> like there was nothing. It was wow. concrete yet. It was just in your mind as like a life journey that was something yes. that you wanted to do and you were determined to do it. And it must have been a year and a half or, yeah, like a year and a half later. Yeah, about a year and a half later, right after the Tears for Fears, which, which you yeah. stepped into yeah. after I had left. And then I went off to Bowie at that point. It's crazy. So I, right? I, I love that little snapshot of you setting that intention and, uh, and, and seeing it with such clarity as... Laws of attraction. I th my life has been that way, I think. It's like since I was a little kid, it's like I, I wanted to get out of Philadelphia. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to do these things. Honestly, the odds were not in my favor from my background of me achieving what I've achieved, regardless of, I think, talent and things. But I think I've always been pretty, like... I have a good daydreaming uh, imagination thing, you know, law of attraction thing. You think you see it, you see it, you see it, and then it, it will comes. You, will you talk more about that? Because it's fascinating. Well, I just think I've been really, um, it's more been a survival technique than anything else. It's like, I think as a kid, you know, I'm not trying to paint a particular picture of myself as being like helpless or anything, but I, I was a very sensitive kid. I think a lot of people who are, of young children who are creative or 
in some way a little bit more open to the world and get wounded a little more easily and just because you kind of take things in and and in that your emotions are more porous or something i don't know how to put it so i spent a lot of my childhood like really really living in a fantasy world in a way like imagining what i would like to see myself doing in the future from like writing screenplays when i ended up getting to go to cal arts to to go to film school you know and and just like when I'd go to school, I would actually imagine I was going to work. I was like, okay, I'm off to the film set now. Uh, today, we're going to shoot this scene. Like, and I'd be playing all these things in my head as a kid. And it was kind of my, you know, way of, I guess, escaping the reality in a sense, but not even knowing until later in my life that I was really setting, like I was putting out energy that is kind of like a law of attraction. I think like, what's that thing, the secret or whatever they call it. It's like, if you, you know, I don't know if I believe in it a hundred percent, but I think there's got to be some kind of um, truth to that where you, if you can, you know, you already see the future, it comes. The things ha- start happening in your life that bring that energy. Like the universe is, is responsible for, re- for replying to that, to that energy that you send out. So I think that, I just was so focused as a kid on playing music, on, on writing films, on, I mean, that was just my whole life. I hardly, I didn't go out in the street and play with the other kids very much. And I was a little bit of a recluse, which I think I still am. But uh, I really do think that had a lot to do with me being able to get out into the world. And I wasn't afraid either. So a lot of people are afraid to, to leave their hometown or to leave their family or, or those things. It's like, I just, I have to go out and play music and, and create and do things, so. Did you have the lack of messages saying, no, you can't do that? Was there anything not listening to any negative messages or it didn't come from your mother? Yes. Well, the, I think the most negative messages came from my father who passed away when I was six or just mm-hmm. about to turn six. I have very vague memories of him, but unfortunately the memories I have are him saying, you'll never, you know, who, you know, I was asking for a guitar when I was five years old, like four or five years old. I heard Jimi Hendrix and it was all over. I was like, I gotta have a guitar. I have to make that sound or learn how to do it. And, and my father, I remember saying, oh, who do you, you know, it was always like this kind of, who do you think you are? Like girls can't do this or you'll never do that or, you know, everything, I, if I said white, it was black. And then if I said, okay, it's black, then it became white. So I, I, I had this not very good relationship that I remember with my father. And, and when he passed away, it was like that was lifted. Because my mother, even though my mother was the best, she was very supportive. And my, I'm the youngest of five kids. So the rest of my siblings, they were the ones who brought all the great records into the house. Earth, Wind, the Fire, all the great music was coming from them. And they were all supportive. So I had a lot of, I had a good, you know, support system after dad left. <laughs> so it was kind of a, you know, I hate to say it, but it was a bit of a blessing for me to yeah. lose that. But, but I do think that some of that early stuff from him still um, is still with me, which is the part of me that is the, the doubting part of my creative self sometimes. And the reason why maybe I'm not so, People always say, oh, you should be more popular. Why don't you get out and do these things? And sometimes I kind of feel like I'm not as good as everybody else. So I can't do it. Right? You know, there's, there's residue from dad, unfortunately. But, you know, it, it gets smaller as the years go by. You know, it kind of washes away. 
Yeah. Or I try and try and be conscious of, of washing it away as well, because otherwise it could stay in the corners of your psyche and ruin you forever. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you, you're popular. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. I feel like I know or knew your mother vicariously through you. Ruby and all the things that you'd say that your mom would say to you. I, I remember yeah. you say, yeah, my mom would always tell me, Gail, it takes all kinds to make a world. <laughs> and you know what? I just wrote a song with that title. Not that there's not already been one with that title. Yeah. But that's going to be one of my first new releases of stuff I'm working on. And, and it's in honor of my mom, who actually on Monday will be the nine years since she passed, coming up on the 22nd of June. So it's kind of a rough weekend for me right now, but huh. nine years already. But yeah, she, my mom was great. She, she, what, the interesting thing about my mother growing up was that she, was, she kind of had the, the voice of my father because she just couldn't understand. It was not so much that she didn't believe I could succeed because I was always good at school. I was always good at what I said I was gonna do, but she just couldn't understand why, like how could this happen? You know, like how, how are you gonna make a living and how are you gonna, how can you be a, a, an artist? How can you be a filmmaker or whatever? But while she was doubting, her actions, her words were kind of doubting, but her actions were going to clean somebody's house for a weekend to make extra money to get me a guitar or to get strings or to get film for the camera or every gig I did, no matter how shitty, in a little bar somewhere in Philly, she was there you know, in the corner, you know, not understanding the music. So there was, I understood that she was proud of what I was doing. She just couldn't understand. So there was that, that sort of support that was the actions that she gave me were 100% support. And God knows by the time she got to come to the spectrum to see me on stage with David Bowie and sit backstage with Bowie and hang out. And he was always so gracious to her. I mean, you know, she's like, <laughs> it was worth it. That's got to be the best. That is just... Yeah, I was so happy. One of my best memories of my mother was when I did... I wonder if it was the second or first... It was the first tour. The first Gwen Stefani solo tour. Mm -hmm. And we played in Camden, New Jersey, outside of Philly, in a shed, a summer shed. You know, completely, you know, what, 15,000 people packed, all like little little girls, you know, little 7 to 14-year-old screaming girls and young people and there was my mom who was in her 80s in the middle of this I could see her from the stage in the middle of the sea of young kids and she was standing up the whole show and she was just like cheer and that my heart was just like oh this is amazing <laughs> it's so amazing yeah yeah so you're good at a lot of things and the performing live took off for you I love it yeah and at the beginning of all of that, you made some records as a solo artist, and you still are playing and writing. What can you say about the difference between the spectacle of putting on a show after the fact? Obviously, you know, some of the, the artists that you were on tour with, you were involved in collaborating at the musical stage, and others, they just came to you after they'd made and released the records. Right. What did you learn about the actual process of songwriting from having so much time in the performing and the spectacle of putting those songs to fans? 
Has it come back into your songwriting now in a way, or is it just two different muscles completely? How, how do you, how do you wow. see that? That's an interesting question. Right, right away, I would say, you know, it's kind of two different muscles for me. I have my own way of, because I feel like I'm not, I'm, I'm not schooled as a musician. Like I don't know theory and I never went to music school. I never studied. I learned what I know about all the instruments I can play. Either I taught myself or, and I learned things from other musicians who are better at that instrument who teach me little things along the way. And when I go off to play with the other artists who I've played with, um, whether I've worked from the album to the tour or just going on tours, it's kind of like a whole nother world to me. I mean, I learn a little bit about, you know, I, I, I look at the songs, for example, that are the ones the audience is all singing to. And I'm like, oh, it's about hooks and like, you know, just seeing certain things about certain songs that, that seem to appeal to people that, that other uh, artists I've worked with who have, you know, the songs they've written. But I have a, a whole, when I go home and I have time and I get in my zone and I start writing my own stuff, I don't know how much I actually draw from that. I just, I continually draw, I think, a little bit from my kind of eclectic pool of just things I like, you know, from Streisand to, to Bowie to, to Warren Zevon to, to Mary Chapin Carpenter. To, I mean, I like everything. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm -hmm. And so when I'm writing a song, I'm, I'm wanting to find all those fun elements of things that I like in other people's songs that I like, not particularly the people that I work for, not especially, you know, not, you know, not, I'm not thinking. Um, if anything, I learned from, from the artists I work with is the performance thing. It's just learning how to play with other musicians and, and how to interpret music more than anything. Um, and also I enjoy, I really enjoy serving a piece of music that's already been made. I don't, you know, like I'm not, I'm not the sort of session player or whatever that would want to embellish something or do, you know, to show off or show that I can do something special or better to a song. If a song works and it's perfect, the joy of recreating that song again live is just like, for me, that's, that's a huge reward for me. And I think that's what I've always liked. You know, I, I haven't done as much recording as a lot of other artists have done. I've done a lot more touring in my life, but I love being on the stage. That's like Zen for me. Mm -hmm. So, so, I mean, I guess I do, I think sometimes I learn about not so much about songwriting in, in a traditional sense, like melody and chords, but when I'm learning parts for someone else's music, I, I'm paying attention to that. I'm like, oh, wow, how did they put that bass part together? Or, oh, look how that guitar responds to this line or how the bass works, particularly with the vocal, because I think the bass and the vocal are like, are like two, two of the most important parts in a song. They really define a song to me, a performance of a song, maybe not how it's written, but you know, if you're a bass player and you're playing a song that has a melody, a singer is not instrumental. It's like, it's so important how the bass works around the vocal because it's, the bass is really, really strong. And I think people don't see it as that way because it's low and they think they can't hear it. You know, people say, well, I can't hear the, what's the bass doing? But the bass is like, um, it's another voice. 
-hmm. it's not just the rhythm or whatever i think it's really the anchor and the, the it's the it's the instrument that drives the piece so through being a bass player i become a little more conscious of of how people put songs together mm -hmm. and how the instruments you know more work together i'm definitely envious of some songwriters like our friend roland orzabal who i think has an incredible sense of chords and things like that how mm -hmm. you know how does he think to go to that change or this change or the other like how do you put these chords together and it's, it's just like <gasps> you know so i'm kind of in awe of that but i've never figured out how how to do it myself particularly but i try <laughs> yeah yeah, and what a voice he has too, you know? Oh my goodness. He's one of the, my favorite people I've ever worked for. And I feel like, talk about kind of serendipity and, and just, uh, I was working with him right when Bowie called. And I just feel like the time, the year, the couple, two years or so that I had spent working with Roland prepared me for Bowie. If I hadn't had that Tears for Fears gig beforehand, I think I would have been such a nervous wreck and I already was a nervous wreck going into Bowie because I just thought, why the hell is he calling me? I'm like, you know, who am I, you know, to be, to deserve this, even though I'd like to have it, but I like, will I be able to, you know, meet the task? And I was very nervous in the first uh, few weeks of that gig, but I feel like I grew a million times in the, the time I worked with Roman Orzabal. He was a huge, huge mentor in my whole life and my whole career as a musician. I learned I learned more how to be more focused with him. I think I was probably the most focused in, <laughs> in terms of on even on myself because he, he we were writing songs for myself and and he was always you know he was just always creating something all the time. It was the first artist I'd worked with where I'd, I'd get invited to his house to just jam all day literally stay there for weeks and just get up in the morning and put microphones on and I was like wow I've never had this experience before I don't think I've had it since really maybe in little spurts but I loved his work ethic it was great and it, it really got my guitar chops in shape it got my vocals in shape it got my bass playing in shape everything was just like cracking by the time Bowie called so I always always I'm grateful to Roland for that very very grateful for the time that we worked together that's beautiful. Was was Alan Griffiths around when you were doing something? Alan was there. Yes, he was. God rest him. Mm. Man, that was, yeah, crazy, crazy. Yeah, Alan was there. When I joined, he and I were kind of the first, we were, we joined at the same time because it was right when Roland had split with Kurt for a, a, a short while. Mm -hmm. And he did, we did those couple of albums, Elemental, and then we did Raul and the Kings of Spain after that first tour. Mm -hmm. elemental so i was involved with that album after the tour which mm -hmm. was great and then we went on to work on some stuff for me and then bowie called <laughs> how, how how did bowie call you how did that was there any communication of the fact that you wanted to work with him that got back not at all nope not at all not at all i had never met him i didn't even really know to I think I knew Kevin Armstrong. I knew some people who had worked with him in London, like a few people. So I did a session with uh, Neil Conti. I think he had done something with David on Absolute Beginners. You know, all the, the London gang. Well, it's so funny um, because I have cassettes from my attic on my table that are from the early 90s. And one of them says uh, jamming with Neil Conti on it. I mean, John Henry yeah. Universal Studios. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All those I love Neil. 
yeah. yeah, he used to have that, uh, the, what was it called? It was like the, the, up in his house in Finsbury Park. Uh, it was like a jam night every Monday and then like every Wednesday or something. We'd go and jam on a Monday and then Wednesday we'd go to the, to the um, I want to say the bottom line, but that's not the name of it. What's that club in London? Mixing them up. Oh my God. The Borderline. Borderline. The borderline. Yeah. And then board, then we'd go and perform whatever we jammed on a Monday in the Borderline. So all these different songwriters would come. Neil, I'm still in touch with him. I went to visit him in his studio in uh, Montpellier. He moved to France. Oh. He's been down there for years. And he has a little, really nice recording studio there. But anyway, yeah, no, I didn't know. I knew a few people who had had some experience with Bowie, but I had never met him. I saw him in the street once in New York City. I walked past me and I was like, oh, it's David Bowie. Um, but he just, I was at Roland Orzabal's house when we got the call. When I got the call, I was working on my uh, solo album that I never finished with Roland. And um, Roland's wife at the time, Caroline, she got the call in the kitchen and, and their youngest son was still a little baby and she was coming in. Their studio was, I don't know if you probably have been there, across the, the yard from the house was the little little barn or whatever it was where the studio was and and Roland and I could see Caroline running across the yard you know with the baby in her arms like running towards the building and we were like wow she looks like something's happened and she opened the doors and she said David Bowie just called I nearly dropped the baby <laughs> he's gonna call the studio in five minutes and so we're sitting there waiting, you know, biting my nails. In five minutes, the phone rings. I go and pick it up in the studio, and that was him. That was the beginning of it all. He traced me down because I was, uh, he, I had management in New York at the time. I had already left London. So I was still, I was based in New York. I was here in Woodstock already. And then I was going back and forth to London because so many things hadn't quite, like, finished. I hadn't wrapped up everything. So I was one of my visits back to London. He tracked me down and called me at, at, at Roland's house. Was this on England's Lane or was this in Bath? Bath, Bath. I was down at the house. I was like living there for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. I had the little house, little room at the top of the house with spiders in it that terrified me. <laughs> Those English I was never, spiders. I was never at that house, but I, I lived close on England's Lane. That's oh yeah, yeah, exactly. That's an amazing story. That's so great. And, th and then that went on for another 20 years, right? I mean, just about, yeah, 20 years. And then he took a break. Obviously, he had a heart attack on that last tour we did in 2004, I think it was. And then out of nowhere, he called back in 2013, was it? Yeah. To do the next day. And then he did, and then, of course, Black Star. And then that was it. But I, yeah, I, and I never thought, you know, it, it's just kind of with, with, with Bowie, it was like, he, he just was, you know, he just breathed and like more art would come out. Like he just had to just wake up in the morning and then he'd be creating shit. I mean, he was just so, the ultimate artist. I mean, really, I mean, I know it sounds cliche and people probably really can just imagine, but he, he to me, is like, I feel like I had the rare opportunity to work with like, you know, like Michelangelo or something, like to be an apprentice of somebody who was truly, 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 truly great at, at not just making music. It was bigger than that. Like, and when you got to be in his world and his environment, it was like, wow, this is like, 
how does how can he think of so many things in one day he's got music going on here and he's painting here and he's got a art exhibition here and he's got a movie he's doing and he's reading all the time and it's like it's just like he was just constantly and he was always in a, a really pleasant person like he wasn't an asshole which was so refreshing he was always humorous and kind and respectful of people and that was so admirable because there can be a lot of assholes in this business as you well know mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean i feel fortunate i haven't been around too many of them but I've heard stories. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes too, um, <clears throat> we you, you bring out the best in people, you know? I mean, sometimes someone has a bad day and they get a reputation what? for- Yes, of course, you know, I agree. A bad agree. relationship where you don't hear both sides of the story, you know? That's right, that's right, I agree. And I, you know, I'm guilty of my own bad days. I'm sure some people would say oh, i met yeah this and she's a total bitch you know she didn't do this or she didn't do that but it would it could have been a bad day <laughs> you have to believe me the benefit of the doubt not always sometimes they do. deserve it but yeah it's it's an amazing testament and and you know one thing i remember hearing about bowie was that he never wanted to stick with the same thing he always wanted to precisely he, he 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 needed things to be fresh for him. And if that's somebody right. worked one time, he didn't want to do it again. So no. he was the, the quintessential reinvent yourself artist every Absolutely. single time. I think so, exactly. And that was the reason it was, a, it was not to even, you know, it wasn't for anything else. It wasn't like he was trying to impress anybody. It was just that he, he could not be bored. He didn't want to bore himself with doing right. the same thing. Oh, it was just his personality in yeah. every facet of, of work that he did. And that made it so much more exciting to work with him because each record and each tour, you never knew what was coming next, what kind, what kind of music it was going to be and what kind of pre presentation and what ideas he'd have for the stage set or, you know, just the rehearsal ethics. All, all, everything would just, you know, you just never knew. And it was exciting. And the best thing about it was that he always had a, a, a he, he knew in his head exactly what he wanted to see. He didn't always know. One time he said to me, you know, making art sometimes, it's not so much about what you put in is what you take away. Like you throw everything in the pot and then you strip it away and then, you, then it reveals itself. So you try many things. So he was always open, it was like a playground. But he would know when, oh, okay, now, now it's taking shape. You know, when you take this away, instead of, you know, other, some artists build the other way. I think I'm kind of the other way, piece by piece. Build, 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 build. What am I building? You know, one, one thing at a time. But he was more like, ah, just throw everything into the pot. Try any old, th you know, just try it. Just, you know, throw it all in. And then I'll tell you what's not working. You know, some artists work the other way. You know, it's kind of like... Yeah. I play that oh because i hear that okay no no okay that's it but he was just like go for it this is the the blueprint like the i not the blueprint but yeah like here's an idea and here's like a group yeah. comes with a little piece of music or really something on a cassette or a tape or whatever and, and then we'd all just build on that and mm -hmm. then he would know whether it was you know he would start you know he would just strip away things that were too much and maybe add a little something if it needed it but yeah he was just incredible incredible 
mind the way it worked. I, can't, I still can't really figure it out, but you know, I never will. I guess. <laughs> so, so would you, um, in the studio, would you overcut? You know, would he overcut like way more songs than would actually come out on a record? Um, sometimes, you know, his thing was like, I wasn't on a lot of his records actually, even in the period I worked with him. I did Earthling, I did a little bit of singing on Heathen and um, Reality, but I didn't play much bass on many things because he would go, I would be, I, sometimes I was working with another artist, so he'd be busy. You know, I couldn't be there, um, or he would just do it with Tony Visconti or whoever was around playing the bass because I think he also worked like, okay, I feel like working today. It's not like he, he didn't always schedule everything so that everybody mm -hmm. could be there. So it's like who was whoever was around. And uh, I think he, he just, uh, uh, I forgot your question now. Would he do more than he would oh. end up? Because he's, oh, right. he's being taken away to make, yeah. Uh, more songs, you mean? Yeah. Or more just... Or would he make those decisions of what to take away before making the record? No, I think he would. He did more songs than than would be on a record. There's yeah. definitely a lot of stuff that's coming out now that we recorded. Some things that I did record with him that were never released are starting to come out. I see. They've released, they've released a few yeah. things recently. So yeah. So yeah, there was. There's even a version. I wonder if I don't even remember if we finished it or not. But once we went in the studio and we re-recorded Laurie Anderson's "Oh Superman" with me doing the lead vocal. Because we used to do it in the concert. We used to do it live. Mm. There's a few bootlegs of it up on YouTube. Uh, somebody caught it one time. We played it in like 97. But we actually went in the studio once in Czechoslovakia when we were on tour and we recorded it because he uh, was going to put it out. And I have no idea where that master is. So maybe one day that'll come out. But I used to love doing that. So I'm a huge Laurie Anderson. Oh, that, that, I, I'm going to check that out. That'd be great to see. So do you yeah. feel that what you're saying, you know, because when you were growing up, you said you were influenced by all the things that you loved. You loved the Carpenters. Mm -hmm. Carpenters, yeah. I saw that you uh, you had said that, you know, someone asked you your taste in music and you, you said it's Blackarack. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. Blackarack. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's kind of like, I mean, I love, you know, it's kind of hard, you know, I'm here now, I'm, I'm in my home studio, I'm learning how to use logic, I'm work, working in the digital world, which is kind of like, <gasps> like a whole other universe to me, and I'm yeah. so used to tape and, and things, uh, you know, I still put all my ideas on cassette tapes when, I, when, I, when I'm like writing and stuff, I have a little old radio shack recorder just down there with my cassettes. And when the, when I, the whole, the when you hold I it. I have both, I have I have this guy, one of these. Oh, I love <laughs> it. I love it. And that's, that's where all my uh, ideas go. I have stacks of cassettes. In fact, I have some cassettes of Venus, South of Venus rehearsals. I, I think I found them in a box somewhere. I have to pull them out. Okay. And, and then I have, and I have the little one too, because I take these to rehearsals. When I have a rehearsal for somebody, yeah. I record my rehearsal on a cassette. Uh huh. Is that the little cassette? No, that's the regular size. Oh, yeah. But I have the little ones too because they stay in the car when I have ID in the car because digital, you lose that shit. It's like it could disappear or get wiped away or who knows where it's going and who's it. listening to it. And I don't like it. That's what the I still have, 
Yeah. Yeah, and I have typewriters too. I still use typewriter. I have a. I become. I have a typewriter collection. I'm a collector. I'm not as good as Tom Hanks. I'm jealous of him. He has the most amazing collection in the world. But I have 12 amazing machines that I've been collecting over the last few years that are just, they're on display in my living room. They're beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> and I use them. When you're writing script ideas and songs, you're going tat 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 Yeah, it's a nice <laughs> feeling. And I, I, you know, I keep, I usually keep, I rotate them because they're all so different. And I keep one on the dining room table and that's where I sort of put lyric ideas. Like I'll, you know, I have a box with papers inside. If I, you know, I type out some few ideas of lyrics and stuff and I put them in like a little, one of those little, you know, boxes with a lid and then I go uh -huh. through the papers and, and find the ideas. Manual or electric? Manual. I don't have any. Somebody gave me an electric. A friend of mine saw one at a, at a, a junkyard or somewhere. I haven't tried to see if it works yet. It looks in decent shape and I would like to get a nice electric, but I never had an electric as a kid. When I was younger, I had an Olivetti Letter of 25 was my first typewriter. And so I have one of those. I had to get another one. There's Hold on, I'm going to go get this thing. I couldn't resist, but this... Uh... I've seen those. And you put an iPad in it, right? The iPad right in there, and uh, I just, yeah. yeah. I've seen, I saw those, in, I've never seen one in person. I have, I have to try it, one of those. It feels like a typewriter, yeah. On my iPad, you know, Tom Hanks is a typewriter freak, and he has his own app called the Hanks Writer. Have you seen that? You can, yeah, and so you, it's like, I type, I use that on my iPad for typing notes, and it sound, it has the sound of the typewriter, the bell, and you have different pictures, you know, like virtual typewriters from the sort of, you know, the, the, the royals to the Hermes to the different sort of styles. So it's hilarious. That's it's very cool. Though. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you probably get asked about all the people that you've worked with a lot. And it's almost like you were starting off as a solo artist and then all of a sudden this other career opened up to you, which yeah. it's kind of like, you know, raising kids. It's like, wait a minute. I'm still the same person I was, only it's 20 years later. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then you get to go back to... You know, I mean, not that we ever forget who we were. Um, mm. it's, it's always there, but it's it's kind of an interesting uh, journey to be able to realize that, you know, all those early influences and things that mm. you were impassioned about are all still very awake. And, yes, And, and yes. the passion is still strong. Yes, yes. Um, it's very enlivening and... I think it's Maria Shriver who said that women can do it all. You just can't do it all at once, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's how I'm feeling yeah. at the moment. Right. Especially so now with the lockdown, I'm off the road. I would have been on tour right now with Lenny Kravitz. We would have been running around Europe somewhere. And I still probably wouldn't be getting to get back to my songwriting. And it's been so many years. And I think there's, you know, after amount of time, I'm realizing I think some of that residue from dad is mm -hmm. like, uh, you, what's, you know, who needs another song? You're not good. You're not as good as the people you work for. What, what, what kind of songs are you going to write? Who cares? You know, it's like all these little doubts 
of yeah. trying to get myself back to that confidence I had when I was younger, when I first met you. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm making my solo albums. I'm going to get a band. I'm going to do all these things. You know, as time goes by, it gets a little, especially, you know, getting on in age or whatever. It's a little, it gets a little more daunting. It's, it's hard to get back in the swing. That's what I'm trying to say. Trying to get back into the, the confidence level of thinking that what I have to offer or what I can offer is even valid anymore. You know, so yeah, I am the same me. This morning I was like, I was listening to Gladys Knight and a little bit of Donny Hathaway. And, and um, you know, the other day I, I threw on some Streisand and I was like, oh, you know, and I just feel like I, I'm still inspired by all, all of that, that music from that time, you know, and I still want to bring that into now i don't want to be retro but i just want to to keep those elements in the songwriting because that's what's great i can enjoy a new pop song or whatever and some of them are fun but i guess i don't even know what you call it i guess it's popular music pop music these days or, or you know what's popular it lacks those things it doesn't use as much of the palette as it could it's like, it's yeah. just kind of like, it's all like linear and flat sounding, the digital thing. When I hear the robot voice, I just want to crawl into a hole. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'd rather hear somebody sing badly than hear the robot voice. <laughs> it just drives yeah. me nuts. Music on a grid. Yeah, forget. Yeah, so forget. I miss, yeah, because, you know, you listen to the, you know, Black Arac, talk about like Gladys Knight today, like early, the album, um, that has uh, the way we were on it. I always forget the name of the album. I can see the cover. It's got like a pastel painting. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's like flutes on there and there's strings and there's, there's harpsichords and, and piccolos and cellos. I mean, there's just like this, the textures in the arrangements of those songs. And yeah. yet, Glass Night's just a soul singer. You know, it's like, it's, just, it's all about the voice ultimately. But what cushion she has to sing on is like, that's what I dream of. Like, I want to write songs that way. I want to be able to feel free and have the opportunity to use that much of the palette should I choose to. Mm -hmm. And it's hard now, you know, because it's, you know, you don't have sessions where you have big strings, you know, you can't afford to do, you don't even have the spaces where you can record those kind of things anymore. You're sending tracks, you're playing with musicians you don't see. You play. For me, I'm working right now alone at home, so I'm playing everything myself, but I'm sure someone else could give it a better flavor. Not that I, you know, just, it's like missing that whole, all those kind of textures, all the colors and, and stuff in the, in the... Right now, so many people are sitting around and the, there's probably a place you could send just about anything to have anything done somewhere. Yes, that's what yeah. I've heard. You orchestras could and all. You could, yeah, orchestra and all. I'm sure anything you'd want to do, there's a way to do it right now because people who would normally be touring aren't. And um, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of that. Well, this is why I'm in, I'm I'm only I've got one more week left of my I'm taking this course to learn Logic Logic Pro. So I'm finally getting my digital skills a little bit up to standard. I'm probably still very far behind everyone else, but at least I'm in the game now. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get some tracks together that are sound that are recorded well enough to send stuff off to people and, and have them help me finish it. Yeah. And I, I've, I've even been taking some guitar lessons online because some, one of my 
favorite guitar players is not on tour, so <laughs> I can say a guy called Chris McQueen. He he plays with um, Snarky Puppy and uh. and uh, so I've been taking a few little tips from him. I think I saw them in Austin at one of the South by Southwest. Pretty amazing, those guys. They got chops for days. David Crosby's favorite. He likes Snarky Puppy? Yeah, I remember a few years ago he found them and I think they've worked together now. So, I mean, there's so much and, you know, as a role model, you know, hearing other people's vulnerabilities is very disarming because we compare our insides to other people's outsides. We think people who have achieved a lot, uh, you know, we all have that inner dialogue that goes, oh, I could never do that. You know, sometimes what's helpful is, I think everybody, no matter what it is they do in life, there is a set of muscles that are strong and developed, and then there's the set of mm -hmm. muscles that are less developed. And what we, right. what we tend to do is every time we get close to the place where we're vulnerable and feel like we may fail or we'll be right. judged harshly, we go right back to those muscles that we say, well, you know, I know yeah. I, got, I got this wired. They don't get the nourishment, they don't get the risk. And it seems like you're in this really, great place where yeah. you know the the upside of lockdown yep is i get to strengthen some of those that, muscles that got a little weak over the years well yeah not even weak but you know if you got a call to go out on tour with somebody boom they'd, they'd be sitting there waiting that's right that's you know? right that's right no i feel like that's i do feel like this has been a gift kind of this time has been a little bit of a gift for me dropped in my lap Mm -hmm. And I really am doing everything in my power to make the best of it. I'm, I'm, I'm working on music every single day. And I, uh, and I don't know when the last time I've done that other than somebody else's music. Yeah. And something you were saying about also like how we go back to the things that we're stronger at, you know, another thing uh, Bowie used to say is that he's like, whenever you feel like you're at your most vulnerable and you're like really uncomfortable and you're a little bit like afraid, he's like, then you're, you're in the right spot stay there always stay there always stay on the edge where you feel like you're just about to fall because then you know you're doing it right i just <laughs> love this it's that yeah. used to be his advice and i was like yeah he's like you know you got to get out of your comfort zone because comfort zone is doesn't really it's just that's just all it is it's a comfort zone it's like you know Power of it's not it's not progressing you it's not you're not being you know you're not progressing until you're always on that edge. And then what do you do when the thing that keeps coming back is something that you're strong at? Because it's what you're known for doing. Like, you know, at what point do you go, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay in this vulnerable place where I'm not getting paid. Well, that's hard. I mean, you know, like, that's, we got to face it. Like it's, it's, you know, life, it's, it's hard, but you, you know, I think that, I think it's just a matter of when you decide to trust, you know, even me leaving Philadelphia was just the beginning of that trust of like, I, I'm, I'm leaving, you know, I went to London with $50 in my pocket, one guitar and nothing to lose, you know, like not, I had nothing. <laughs> I went and stayed with my friends and they took care of me. And then I figured out a way to, you know, get my life together in London. And it's like, it's also just like trusting that it's gonna be all right somehow. Why London and, it, and not New York? Well, I was in New York before and I couldn't get arrested in New York. I was like, 
I had a band with a friend, an English friend of mine. We were kind of writing songs together. We were kind of a duo, like Eurythmics at the time. We were like new. We, we fancied ourselves as like the new Eurythmics, maybe. A keyboard player friend of mine, he's from London. And I was playing bass and guitar. We were making these demos on our four-track Tascam and mm -hmm. going around the Danceteria and all those. It was like early 80s. Uh, and trying to get a record deal. And, and the stuff I was writing was more, at that time, was kind of kind of funky, kind of like Grace Jones. Grace Jones is another one of my idols because she was just, you know, Grace is talk about out of the box and like original and unique and bold and art and beautiful and just incredible. So I was like, you know, between Annie Lennox and Grace Jones, they were at that period of my life, my role models. Mm -hmm. So I was doing stuff that was a bit more kind of rock funk based, more, you know, interesting, like what they do. And, you know, the record labels in America, in New York, didn't really want to know at that point. And maybe I don't know if I knew the right people or whatever. So I had the opportunity to go to London because my friend went back to London and I said, well, maybe I'll come with you and uh, take some songs and shop them around in London. So uh, I went back and like stayed at his family's house for a while and met some people in London. And in London, it was just a whole different atmosphere than New York. And I think a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the thing that I faced even after I finally did my first album on Warner Brothers in um, London and then went back to the States four or five years later, however many years later, I faced this incredible racism in this country, the same thing that's going on now. Like I faced it with the music. It was like Warner Brothers, but well, we don't know how to market corporate world because it's not really a black record, but it's not really a rock record. And it's not, it didn't fit. And they would always send me to these, the, the urban department of the mm -hmm. record label all across America. Cause I did all these little sort of radio tour, you know, like a little small little radio tour with my guitarist at the time. And I was like always in the wrong category. And then there was always, they were like, well, we don't know what to do with it. And I'm like, well, I, did, I couldn't understand. <laughs> like, cause that, I didn't have that problem in Europe. It just, either you liked the song, or you didn't like the song. It didn't matter whether I was black on the cover or white or whatever. Either you liked Wasted Country or you didn't, you know, or if you liked, it, it didn't. And that seemed to be the same with a lot of artists in, in coming out of London and in the rest of Europe. So, I mean, I owe it to Europe the same way as Lenny Kravitz. He, he did, couldn't get arrested in the U.S. And then they got signed in London, the same thing. Mm -hmm. London, Amsterdam, that whole sort of circuit. Because there was, uh, you, know, you know, not that racism doesn't exist all over the world, but when it came, comes to art and music, it's a little less, there's a, more of an even playing field in Europe and, and some other parts of the world. This country still likes to polarize. They have to know where it belongs. You know, they just gotta know, it's gotta fit here. Once in a while, something can break through that. Like it's just spectacular enough. And I think more things now are crossing borders more than yeah. in the eighties, way more. But at the time when I was starting out, that's basically why. London. I stayed where things were going well. Yeah. Things were yeah. going really well. And then people started hiring me to play bass. And then just one thing led to another. And I got to make a couple of records. And I got to, I got to do so many things that I don't think I would have had the opportunity to do in New York, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I love New York. Best yeah. city in, in, in America. <laughs> where, where did you go to London? Because I, I moved there the very end of the 84. 83. 
Yeah. All right. So we would August of '83. Uh -huh. I remember. I think that was my because that was the first time I ever left the United States. My first time out of the country. I was 18, uh, 19, mm -hmm. maybe 19, about to be 20 that year. Maybe I was 20, about to be 21, something like that. That's exciting and bold, very bold. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I had no idea what I was stepping into, and I was like, well, you know what? I've always wanted to go to Europe. Why not? Here's my opportunity. Yeah. London's amazing. The Eurythmics are there. I <laughs> love you. I was crazy about them at that time. You're still very international. You're traveling all over and... Indeed. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. You know, in the States, there's also these gender divisions, um, like the mm. Rock Roll Hall of Fame. True. At this point, still only has 8% of the people are women that are in That's the crazy. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's crazy. 8% out of... That's freaking crazy out of all the female half half of humanity what a what a huge imbalance that is yeah i wonder about those kind of things anyway i mean you know on one hand it's it's nice that people get honored but it's like they leave so many out it's like how giving out awards you know is, you know what i mean yeah yeah but you've push through so much or, or I don't even know if push is the word you know because you went to film school and you were sensitive and you had a big fantasy life it seemed like your inner world was a, a, a more powerful navigator and map for you than the outer world and and that mm -hmm. really helped you and I'm bringing it up again just because I think it's so helpful for people listening here, you mm -hmm. know, as a means to get beyond, you know, self-imposed limitations. And, and I also see, you know, people won't be able to see this, but behind you, you have the wall of fame. You have all <laughs> you know, these role models and- Yeah, Laura Nero. Yeah. Beyond Warwick, so Dolly you, Parton. <laughs> and, all there. and it's diverse. Um, mm. And would you, did you read, biographies of people and autobiographies growing Only up? recently, not too many. I, I've, I've read a few recently. I read the, the, um, I read the Tony Tennille one from Captain Tennille, which was really amazing because I, I love them as well. And I didn't know really anything about their, how they came about or the real true story, which was quite tragic, really. Uh, I read the Karen Carpenter, um, I just bought, um, I'm halfway through Annie DeFranco's book at the moment now, uh, which is very interesting because I, I know her as a friend, but there were a lot of things about her I never knew. So I'm discovering in the book, which is very interesting. I don't know. I, I, I didn't read a lot of biographies, not particularly, no. Yeah. But I, I, I'm starting to pick up a few now to learn about like what other people's uh, uh, story has been, you know, their, their journey. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting, actually. Well, it's an honor to know you. And oh, Louise, likewise. I'm a huge fan of yours as well, you know. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I treasure all the shared memories and times we've had. You know, I also found some photos, and I was before digital, when we were with Brian Ferry. I have some, some photo photos that I found. So I just moved, like, recently to this house a few years ago, so there's still a lot of shit in boxes, believe it or not. Every now and then I find some things. If I can find them again, wherever I saw them and scan them all. From the video shoot. 
Oh, that video shoot. I was, I, you know, I still pinch myself, you know. <laughs> that was amazing. I forgot about that. All that Edie Sedgwick. Uh, That's right. I makeup and stuff. And this little sequin dress. And I was the butch and you were the femme. And it was like that. And then there was the, <laughs> I was and I have imagine. photos of us in like Copenhagen. I have pictures of us like out in like restaurant having coffee and stuff when we were doing those TV things with Brian. So I'm going to find them. Maybe you can post them. If I, I'm going to look yeah. for them. I, I would love, I would love that. That was really, that was such a fun little TV tour. I loved it so much. Yeah, it was great. It was great. I always, even when I go to Madrid with anyone else, I always think of that because mm -hmm. we had that dinner that night with Pedro Almodovar. That's right. And Peter Wolf and, and the woman that I was crazy about from Hair, what was in your friend, Beverly D'Angelo came to the dinner and I freaked out because I was, because uh, Hair is like my top, one of my top five favorite films of all time. The, the Hair, the musical, the oh. remake in 1978 has Beverly <laughs> D'Angelo. She's the girlfriend of, uh, she's kind of one of the girlfriends that, that end up with the, the guy who's going off to war. My dad took me to that when I was a little girl and I was just horrified when everybody- Because they were <laughs> You know, it's just like, wait a minute. Yeah, we did it recently in New York. Uh, a few years back, they revised it with a lot of the original people who played the music, mm -hmm. uh, like Bernard Purdy and like whoever was the original. Right. A couple, one of the backing singers that was working with Lenny Kravitz uh, with us on a few tours back, she was in the, the new Broadway version. And she said, yeah, they had to be naked. It was the same. I had no idea. I tried to see it, but I was never, I missed it. I was so bummed. I would love to have seen it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, more things have happened than I can remember sometimes. It's, yeah, same here. Yeah. Well, it's so great that you took the time to do this. I'm so excited to get... Well, thank you for asking me, Louise. I appreciate it. Stay cool. Get your air conditioner back on. Yes, I will. Well, thank you, Gail. You're welcome, Louise. It's a pleasure to virtually see you again. It was nice to see you in Nashville. I hadn't seen you in person. For craziness. Craziness. Well, keep creating. Thank you keep so much, Gail. Love you. you. I love you too, Louise. You take care. Be safe. You too. Bye, my friend. <laughs>